What we're thinking about at the moment is the church. And as Jono said when he introduced the service, um, there's lots of questions about the church. Like, why bother with the church? What's the point of the church? Why come to church? There's lots of people who say they're Christians who just don't attend and don't participate. And so tonight, I wanted to unpack for you uh, why bother with church? What's the point? And the reason I'm doing it is uh, I've been thinking and praying a lot, and it really, I really sense God said to me that this, we just needed a pause in the middle of our series on Mark and going into Ecclesiastes to just refocus on the basics of um, what's the point of church? And why do we give ourselves to the church? And why do we belong, as Jono said? So, here's some questions. What are we? What are we as a church? Well, um, we started off uh, as, as a group of people meeting in synagogues or in public halls and then in homes and in catacombs. And for the first 300 years, Christians didn't own property uh, because you couldn't. You were a persecuted, illegal, religious group. And you couldn't own property. But then things changed in the Roman Empire and we could own property. So our uh, identity shifted from being, in the, the Greek word for, the most common word for church is ecclesia or gathering that comes from the Hebrew word uh, kahal, the root of an assembly. And, uh, and the ecclesia was just the gathering, the people of God. And then the people of God started buying property to meet in. And that's not a bad thing, is it? It's good to have somewhere to meet, right? But what happened, as happens very often, there are some unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences is once you own property, you can start to identify yourself with the property. So the word ecclesia, assembly, got translated later on in church history and became the word, the German word kirk, church, and that actually came to be associated with the word for a building. And so now, today, for very, very many people, if you say, what is the church, they'll think about the building. Well, it's this building, or St. Mary's, or the cathedral, or some other kind of building, right? Um, in fact, if you did a study, if you dropped into the world from outside, not knowing anything about the church, and you did an analysis of the church, particularly the church in the developed world, and you said, what is the core business of this organization what do you think you might be tempted to say? Just looking at it as an outsider. Property development. That's what we are. We are multi-billion dollar owners of real estate. Uh, that's the church, right? Or is it? Now, there's some consequences of that when we think of the church as a building. Because once you own buildings, you've got to maintain them. And that takes money. And then what you discover is that uh, the person who controls the money and the buildings controls the church. And here's the next thing that happens when you have a building, right? Is that buildings require conservative, risk-averse people who are cautious to look after them. Because they take a lot of looking after. If you've got a thousand-year-old cathedral, you don't want to mess with it, right? So who ends up looking after the buildings. Well, people who like looking after buildings who are typically conservative and cautious. So who ends up running the church? Who ends up controlling the church? Conservative, cautious people. And they have a place in the kingdom of God. Don't get me wrong. But you don't want the church as an institution run by cautious, conservative people whose fundamental goal in life is to stop the buildings falling down. Because you lose the idea that the church isn't the building. The buildings are just here to serve us. Right? Keep the rain off. 
uh, the church we served at in Toronto, uh, which is a great church, had this interesting experience with its buildings. They were a small church, uh, and uh, the church grew and grew and grew, and so they did this big renovation, raised a lot of money, renovated the building, and it was awesome. And then just before they moved in, guess what happened? A local teenager torched the building, burnt it to the ground, <laughs> raised it. So or you can imagine their big campaign working on this, about to move in, burnt to the ground. So then they have to fight with the insurance company, have to rebuild from scratch. Uh, when the story of that church is told, do you know when the period of greatest growth and energy and spiritual vitality was in the life of that particular congregation? It was in the years when the buildings were being built and burnt down and rebuilt and they were meeting in a school hall. It just changed things because you broke this connection that the church is the building that we've got to preserve. So the church isn't. The church is a people. Okay. Uh, so you go, okay, well, we're not a building, though buildings are great. Uh, is the church a club? Well, there's a lot about us that is clubbishness, isn't there? Like... We have our club songs. We've just been singing a bunch of them, right? We do a lot of karaoke at this club. Um, we have uh, our club uh, constitution and rules of membership. Uh, we charge membership fees. If you're visiting tonight and we haven't spoken to you about those, um, we, you know but are we a club? Well, no, we, we have a club. There's a bit of us as a club, but we're not like a club because here's the thing. Clubs are fundamentally about meeting the needs of the club members, and anyone who doesn't have that particular need to be met in that way at that time gets excluded from the club. They often are, are ethnically determined or socio-demographically determined, narrow and exclusive in their membership. The church globally is the most inclusive organization ever. The church is this one place where anyone can walk in from outside and join an assembly, a gathering, the people, and make a demand on the people to be loved, to belong. Very unclub-like. And actually, jokes aside, we don't really charge membership fees. In fact, belonging to the church is completely, utterly free. In fact, the church is an institution you can come to and actually get money from if you're going through hard times. It makes no demands while simultaneously making extraordinarily high demands, as we'll see, but wait for that. So we have some, we, we have buildings, we're a bit like a club, but we're not a club. So then in our tradition, we, we, you might have heard this in various places, say, well, we're not these things, well, we're a meeting. So there's been this idea around that uh, church, we don't do services of worship, we have meetings. So church is all about meetings. Well, I was at dinner last night with some uh, friends and um, families from some other parents from school, and uh, towards the, through the course of the meal, uh, we got chatting, and one of the guys was asking, asking around, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing tomorrow as a family? Blah, blah, blah. Comes to me, says, oh, Mark, what are you doing tomorrow? And he's visited this church a couple of times. They live just across the road. And uh, he said, oh, are you working tomorrow? So I said, yeah, I've got three services. And, and then he started asking really interesting questions about church. And, and the other, the other the, so these three guys are interrogating me about church. And, um, uh, and he said to me, I, I made a whole big thing about how we're working to, to make church relevant for people. I said, church is a bit like the gym. You know, the problem with the gym and the fitness industry is, if you think about it, who are the people who are going to get the most value out of a gym? Is it the super fit people 
or is it the sedentary people who are dying from lack of exercise? Well, it's the sedentary people who are dying from lack of exercise. They get the most value out of the gym, but they don't want to go because it's too intimidating because they think, I've got to be all fit and super together and look good in active wear before I can go to the gym, right? Uh, and I said, the church has the same problem. We, we, we try and make ourselves relevant, but actually the church is of most benefit for people whose spiritual lives are completely messed up, who've got lots of problems, lots of questions, lots of struggles, and uh, that's who it's, but they're the ones who look at the church and go, oh, I've, you know, I, uh, I have to have all my questions answered and be super religious before I can actually fit in there. And so this friend looked at me and said, well, yeah, but you're like a gym that only opens for an hour and a half a week. And when people come in, they've got to sit on these funny wooden pews. And why do you do it like that? Because they have 24-hour gyms now. So that's a pretty dumb strategy if you're into retail, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it is, isn't it? And then in a stroke of genius, I said, ah, but wait. I said, the church is more than a meeting. Because it's not just what we do on a Sunday. This isn't just church. You, we are the church 24-7. And I said, you know, we meet in people's homes and in offices and in coffee shops to, to support each other and encourage each other and pray for each other. And it's an all-of-life activity that you can do every day of the week. And he went, oh, oh, okay, and didn't know what to do with it after that. So uh, we, are to build, we have a building, but we're not a building. We are club-like, but we're not a club. We have meetings, but we're not a meeting. So what are we? Well, here's a little definition I came up with. Uh, the church, uh, we are a movement of God's people on a mission to change the world. We're a movement to change the world. We belong to God, and it's very exciting, and it's dynamic, and all the club-likeness and the meetings and the buildings and everything else has to serve that. Now, you might say, oh, my goodness, Mark, <laughs> I've never been to a church that looks like that. <laughs> And in, and in fact, you can look around the developed world, countries like Australia and Canada and the United Kingdom and Western Europe, and you'll see the church not looking at all like a movement. In fact, many places looking like a little decrepit, old, retreating uh, group of people indwelling old historic monuments. And you can, oh, it's a bit depressing. Listen, that's, not the, that's actually not the truth. You look around the rest of the world, you look in Asia, you look in, China, uh, in uh, Africa, you look in Latin America, you see the church growing and changing their nations. So it is a movement. It's always been a movement. It still is a movement. That's what we need to work towards and recapture and pray to have happen in our lives. A movement of God's people on a mission to change the world. Here are some metaphors that uh, unpack this a little more and give us a bit of a glimpse of what, of, of what we are as the church. We're the body of Christ. Yeah, well, if you've been around church a while, you go, yeah, 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 yeah that's all great. What, is, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Uh, Jesus Christ has no hands and feet in this world to love people and care for people, but our hands and feet, right? One of the great problems in the world is the existence of evil. And we all go, oh, evil, how can God let evil go on? Oh, what's he doing about it? To which the Bible's answer is, look in the mirror, you turkey. You're the answer. I'm the answer. Not to all of it and not to all the great metaphysical questions. But God's plan, God's plan to bring an end to evil and suffering is to work through a people who are his hands and his feet in this world. This is how people are going to know his love. It's through his body. It's a very deliberately chosen metaphor, right? 
and a powerful metaphor. So we're on a mission. God has a mission to heal the world, restore the world, and, and we're it. No, not just us. The billion or so other followers of Jesus are part of it as well. Now, we're, we're the temple of God. You know, as we go out as hands and feet, one of the Old Testament metaphors uh, that is picked up and used of us in the New Testament is, is the idea of a temple. And now the temple is the place where God's presence dwells and, and where people come to meet and encounter God. And so now in the New Testament, the Bible says, you don't go to a place to meet God, you go to a people to meet God. So here's the good news. The mission we're on is to be the body of Christ in the world. And what happens is as we go into the world, when people meet you and me, they meet little temples. The living God dwells in you and in me. And so when people meet us, this is where they come to encounter God. Isn't that extraordinary? Wow. It's quite remarkable. We're also the flock of Christ in John 10. We're sheep. Now, I'm going to move over that partly for the interest of time, but also because it's a terribly unflattering metaphor. <laughs> like sheep are really dumb. I find that encouraging because I'm looking out at you. <laughs> and I look in the mirror and I go, man, we're sheep, but we're his flock. We belong to him. And we're the bride of Christ. What does that mean? Well, actually, it means that, you know, if you go to a wedding ceremony, listen to the vows, and you say, I'll promise to love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until death parts us, right? Radical commitment. So what that metaphor says is God is utterly committed to the well-being of the church. He'll never give up on the church. You might give up on the church. I might give up on the church. God will never give up on the church because he has bound himself to his people with a covenant love. That's incredible. No matter how, I'll tell you why that's incredible. I've been, I've been involved in, in helping leading churches for many, many years. And let me tell you, uh, every church I've been, in, been a part of um, has been both wonderful and glorious and really annoying and tragically flawed. <laughs> and there's been sin. And, and we see that in, in little annoying ways where we gossip and we let each other down and we tell lies to bigger ways where, you know, people have affairs with other people in the church to massive gross evil ways such as being uncovered by the Royal Commission. And we see the church perpetrating excruciating evil and the this metaphor says God will never, ever, ever, ever give up on us and on the church. This is his plan. It's his bride. We're his family. We belong to him. Uh, um, how many of you, okay, this, how many of you uh, live in families that are completely, utterly perfect? There's never any unresolved tension, never any dysfunction, never any bitterness or misunderstandings or, you know, if you're sitting here next to your parents, you should raise your hands at this point. Freya, anytime you can put your hand up and say, that's our family. Just feel free, you know. That's not true. All of our biological families are, are disappointing in all sorts of ways, right? 
I mean, my, if I speak a bit about my family. My family of origin, let me tell you, didn't even put the fun in dysfunctional, right? It was just, I was really messed up, really messed up. I tell you what changed my life. As a 15-year-old, was being brought along to a youth group, coming to know Jesus, and discovering the church as a family. So we've lived in multiple cities in different countries, and, and we've traveled around the world. And the amazing thing about the church is wherever you go in the world, when you walk into the church, you're actually in a spiritual family. And they'll look after you, and they'll care for you. And you'll look after them, and you'll care for them. It's extraordinary. One of the things that I love about what God is doing in this church is more and more it feels like a family with people of every age and stage of life. And we're here to care for each other and love each other. And if, you know, and, and you see what you see how good it is when you have many fathers in Christ and many mothers in Christ and many aunties and uncles in Christ, older people who will love you and serve you and bless you because your parents won't do a perfect job and haven't done a perfect job. And I speak as a parent who owns his imperfections. Uh, but the church, together we raise each other and we live with each other. So why are we here according to Jesus uh, with this missionary movement where they change the world? This is what Jesus says. Um, he says, "Go. We're, what, why we're, what's our purpose? Our purpose is to go into the world to renew it. Uh, great verse, Jesus says at the end of John's gospel, John 20, 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Now, quick check. How many of you, now you don't have to show your hands, but just think about this. How many of you uh, struggle a little bit with anxiety and you kind of feel stressed quite a lot, right? How many of you have ever found yourself waking up at night with your stomach churning and maybe sometimes it happens, right? So you're 12, you're 11, you're 10, you're nine, you know, all through university. And then it only gets worse, uh, just letting you know. Um, so we hear this promise when Jesus says, I will give you peace. And that is great news, isn't it? Yeah, man, that is incredible news for a world that is anxious and a world where relationships don't work and we're at war internally and at war between each other in families and in, between cultures and races and nations. There's war, there's discord, there's anxiety and stress. Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace. And you go, yes, I'll have some of that. That is incredibly good news. Okay. But then look at the second part of that. And that's not good news, is it? He says, as the Father has sent me, I will send you. You go, what does that mean? Well, here's, I don't know if you ever thought about this. Here's the story of Christianity in a nutshell. Uh, the, the, Christianity claims that there is one God in three persons who's existed for all eternity in a community of perfect love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfection, intimacy, community, no pain, no suffering, no misunderstanding, no gossip, no tiredness, no injustice, just, just glorious, perfect community of love. And one day, uh, the father and the son are sitting down having breakfast. And uh, the father, and they're chatting, and the Holy Spirit's there waiting on them and bringing them bacon and eggs. Uh, and, and, and the father says to the son, hey, son, have a look at this, this world that I made. And, uh, and the son looks down, and the father says, son, son, can you see the mess my beautiful people have made of the world? Can you see the pain that they are experiencing 
man, these beautiful people that I made in our image, these people who we together love more than anything else, they're, they're killing each other. And they're hurting each other. And they're dying. And they're messing up the world that I gave them. What are we going to do? And the son goes, I don't know, Dad. Have you got an idea? And the father says to the son, here's the plan. Son, I want you to leave our community of perfect love where you've never known injustice or suffering or loneliness. And I want you to go into their world. And in their world, I want you to experience every bit of its brokenness and its pain and its evil. And I want you to go in there and I want you to take all of that pain, all of that evil, all of that suffering, all of that injustice. I want you to take it upon yourself and I want you to let the world kill you so that you can draw all of the evil out of the world, absorb it into yourself and heal the world and set the world free to be the way we wanted it to be. How's that, son? So when Jesus says, I'm going to send you into the world the way the Father has sent me, that is some scary news. That is, that is Jesus saying, hey, listen, I will give you peace. I will bless you. But what you can't be is a holy huddle. What you can't turn your religion into is a self-serving thing that is just about you and people like you feeling good about you because I'm gonna send you into the world as the Father has sent me to go into the world Monday to Saturday and to change the world and to suffer with the world, in the world, for the world and to bring redemption and healing and justice and renewal into the world. You can't make church a holy huddle. Because Jesus says, I'm going to send you into the world as the Father has sent me. Wow. How do you do that? What does that look like? Well, the first thing we've got to do, uh, according to Jesus, is we've got to tell people about him, right? And the gospel, this gospel, this great news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We've got to tell people about Jesus. Now, that's hard, I know. There's something weird in our culture, and I don't pretend to understand it fully. There's something weird that makes us feel that, yeah, Jesus is great for me, and Christianity is true for me, but it's somehow completely inappropriate to tell anyone else about Jesus. Uh, that's weird, right? I don't know why we think that. I mean, I, there's all sorts of reasons, I, I guess. But if you think about it, um, we all love name-dropping, don't we? You know what name-dropping is? It's an attempt to boost your sense of self through associational status. Uh, and I love it. I, I must confess, I love it. I, I have a very low-status individual, the low-status job. So any status I can get from association with others, I love. So Margot, my wife, was at a conference in Oxford two weeks ago, and... Um, and at this conference, it was a great conference on uh, social entrepreneurship funded by big American foundations. And the opening speaker at this conference, at which my wife was, was none other than Jimmy Carter. Now, you guys, doesn't mean much to you, but to people of my vintage, he's a hero, man. He, a former president of the United States, an amazing Christian man, a world leader, a man of peace and integrity, just extraordinary. My wife was in the same room as Jimmy Carter. Isn't that, don't... Just want you all to know that, man. I am like one 
handshake away from Jimmy Carter right there. I'm going to drop that name left, right, and center, Jimmy Carter and my wife in the same room. I'm married to the woman who hangs out with Jimmy Carter. All right, her and like 1,200 other people, and it was a conference, and you know, he's 93 and probably wouldn't even have remembered if he met her. So we do this all the time. We love telling people about other wonderful people we've met and people who've had an impact in our lives. When I'm happy to name drop other people's names and mention other people who are significant to me, why do I find it so hard to name drop Jesus' name? I mean, admittedly, people might think I'm a dork and a religious nut. They might misunderstand me. They might be affronted and confronted. But we have to do it. Think about it. The only reason you're here is somebody told you about Jesus, right? Might have been your parents. Might have been a youth group leader. Might have been a scripture teacher. We, we, we all come to know Jesus. He, goes, he changes our lives one life at a time. And we come to know Jesus on the arm of a friend. That's what we're about. One of the things I loved when, when we were when the nominators and the bishop of this church approached us and asked us to come and work here, one of the things I loved was since the mid-90s, the, the, sort of the heart of this church has been to be a church for the unchurched, to tell people about Jesus. So we need to do that. We need to find ways to do it without being a dork and without being arrogant and judgmental. But I, so here's what I find. I find people are really interested in Jesus as a person. I'll give you a little example of how I how I went about it last night at this dinner party, and, and how I do it often, I say to people, well, you know, um, just imagine if everybody in the world lived the way Jesus said we should live. Wouldn't that make the world a great place? And everyone goes, yeah, that really would. He said there'd be no racial hatred, there'd be no poor people in the world, there'd be no injustice, there'd be no oppression of women. It'd be an amazing place. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, but there's a problem with that, isn't there? Oh, what's that? And I says, well, here's the thing. I said this to the guys last night around the dinner table. I said, we as human beings have an incredible tendency to F things up. Uh, it's one of the definitions of sin. And uh, I said, here's the thing. We think it's a great idea to, to have the world full of people who live like Jesus. Why don't you go and try and do that? <laughs> Why don't you go try and live like Jesus? And I said, because you know what? It's really hard. <laughs> Just try for a day. And they were like, yeah, that's really hard. So I said, the thing is, we know how we should live, but we're too stuffed up to get there. So here's, here's the great news. Jesus doesn't just give us a great goal and a vision. Jesus actually comes, God comes and says, I'm going to help change you so that you can live that way. I said, isn't that great news? That if you want to, you can have God's help to live in the way of Jesus and we can make the world a better place. I th that's all I said. It was pretty cool. That's all you've got to do. Because that's the heart of Christianity. Got to tell people. But then, we don't just tell people. Well, we do tell people. And what else? The other thing we do is this. We do good to all. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. He says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Uh, sometimes there is a pejorative sort of put-down of people like you and me and of Christians, and, and, and we're, we're told that we're do-gooders. It's an older version of being called a social justice warrior, perhaps. 
Um, we're do-gooders. But that's exactly right. I'm like, yes, we are. No, I don't think we do enough, as much good as we could. But if we're going to change the world, the mission we're on is to tell people about Jesus and then serve people and do good. See, how does God's... Uh, Jesus taught us to pray. He said we're to pray that God's kingdom will come on earth as uh, will will be done on earth as it's done on heaven. Well, how does that happen? That happens through us, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. So as a church, the global body of Christ, our goal is to go and do good to all. And that's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years, right? We've, you know, who, uh, who brought an end to the Atlantic slave trade in the United Kingdom? Transatlantic slave trade ended by Christians who set up hospitals and schools and universities all across the world. Well, it's Christians who set up our leading humanitarian organizations and, and, and made that just a common thing. Well, it's Christians who brought about reform of prisons in England? Well, it was Christians who changed the labor laws in the Western world so that little children weren't spending 18 hours a day working in factories seven days a week, which is what happened in the United Kingdom and across Europe at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Who, who did good for the little children? It was Christians. Who's out there at the forefront fighting against modern-day slavery through organizations like International Justice Mission? It's Christians. We do good. All the research shows in the developed world, who gives substantially more of their money and time to do good than anyone else? It's Christians. That's what we do. That's wonderful. And what's amazing is we don't just look after our own. Uh, historians will tell you, tell us, that one of the reasons the early church grew from like zero members at the time of Jesus' death in 300 years to be a majority faith in the Roman Empire, 300 years changed the world, was because Christians cared for all the poor, not just their own. In the time of the Roman Empire, uh, the only people who would care for you were your family or your tribe or your clan or your ethnic group. There was no such, it was a highly racist culture, culturist, segregated. So, for example, in the city of Rome, the only way they could keep the peace between all the different tribes who'd come to Rome from around the empire was having them in tightly segregated, separated living uh, quarters. So you had the, you know, you, you, you kept them apart. And, and then the Christians emerged, these crazy followers of Jesus, and they would care for anyone. They would do good to all. So that's how, you, that's how we change the world. Now, uh, you don't have to go to deepest, darkest Africa to do that, do you? You've just got to go to school tomorrow. And you go to school tomorrow, and you've got to tell people about Jesus as best you can, and you've got to do good to everyone. You know that dorky, nerdy kid? No, that might be you. Okay, you know the, um, you know the kid that no one else wants to talk to? Do good to that kid. You know, the bully who's making everyone else's life miserable, do good to them. Maybe by turning them into the school authorities and letting them experience some justice, but do good to all. And, and if you're, you go to work tomorrow, well, you know, how do you, how do, you do good? You go to work to drop the name of Jesus when you can and do good at work. Goodness me, you know, wouldn't it have been good if we had a few people doing good at the upper echelons of our, of our financial services industry over the last hmm, maybe 10 years? Don't cheat your customers. Don't lie. 
Don't promise what you can't deliver if you're in sales. Don't gossip. Don't trample over people to get ahead. Do good to all, not just those who are going to benefit you. That's how we change the world. You start with yourself. Actually, you don't even have to wait for work tomorrow. Go home. Do good to your annoying family members. That's a good place to start. And we change the world that way. So, uh, who are we for? Wrapping it up. We're not for ourselves. Uh, one of the great dangers in the church is we can become a church that's it's about us. It's never about us. It's always about the lost. Uh, Jesus tells the story of the, you know, the shepherd. He's got 100 sheep, goes out at the start of the day with 100. He comes back, he's only got 99. What does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes out to find the one. So church, here's, here's what will stop church becoming boring and disappointing for you. Here's the recipe, right? Keep church as a movement that is aimed at telling others about Jesus and doing good to all. Become, remain radically outward focused. We, hear, we are here to serve the world. And when we do that, paradoxically, we find that our own needs get met and we love each other and we serve each other and we have all that feeling of community that comes when you change the world together. Here's how you make church boring and disappointing. Make it all about us. And then it's guaranteed to be disappointing. When, we, when our eyes are on the mission, when we have that movement dynamic, then you find the church is actually vibrant and alive and challenging and your own needs for love and acceptance and healing get met. It's the way God's kingdom works. How do we do it? Two things. We do it through loving union with Jesus Christ. When I joined, when I started getting involved in the church as a teenager, they had some weird language. This is in Cape Town. It's not because it was in Cape Town that the language was weird. But they said things to me that I never heard before, like, Ma, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Have you ever heard anyone say that to you? Maybe then, yeah. You've got to ask Jesus into your heart. And I'm like, hang on. I know my anatomy. I grew up in a medical family with medical journals on the coffee table in the lounge room. And I, how do I, where does he, does he get in through the, through the aorta? Which ventricle does he reside in? How do I get Jesus into my heart? And they said, Mark, stop being a smart ass. I've heard that a lot. Uh, through the course of the last 45 years. Uh, stopping a smart ass, it's a metaphor, you idiot. It says, God, ask Jesus to come into the core of your being. Welcome him into your life. He's a spirit, he's not a body. He wants to come in and be united with you. So Paul can say, uh, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let me ask you this. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me ask you this. Can, can you echo those words? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Revelation 3.20, at the end of the Bible, Jesus says, speaking to Christians, he says, behold, look, I'm standing at the door of your life and I'm knocking. And he says, if you open the door, I'm gonna come in and eat with you. I'll come and live in you. Let me ask you, have you opened the door of your life to Jesus? Like deeply. And, and here's the thing, you might've done it once at a big emotional meeting up on the mountain. You might've done it years ago. But, but Jesus says, this is, has to be the constant stance of our lives to keep that door open because we can let him in and then we can shut him out. <laughs> And we're only going to change the world when we do it from a place where Jesus Christ lives his life in us 
and through us. You have to keep your heart open. Are you doing that? Does he live in you? And then you've got to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus says these words in Acts as he births the church. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, if we're going to go out and change the world, and please God we will, here's the thing, you can't do it yourself. I've been in the people helping, people changing business for 25 years and here's the thing I've discovered. Uh, as as convincing a speaker as I am, and as hard as I might work at it, I do not have the spiritual power to change anyone. I struggle to change myself, and you will as well. It's really hard to change yourself, let alone trying to change someone else. Just try being married, you know? It's enormously frustrating, because you, you marry someone whose their differences attract you to them, and then you bang your head against the wall of their difference for decades as you try and change them, and you can't do it. It's really hard to change anyone or anything. And yet God sends us out to change the world. How does he, what does he do? He gives us his spirit to, to give us the power to do it. You can have power, spiritual power to change the world through your prayers, through your words, through your actions, to actually bring the kingdom of heaven into this world, to push back chaos, to set the captives free, to bring people from death into life. That is available for you and for me. The Bible says, unless the builder builds the house, the laborer works in vain. How, what, what, how much spiritual power do you have in your life? I've been thinking about rebranding our church. I joke about this a bit. Um, and I think we, you know, I've been joking. We, we're really an Anglicostal church, um, aren't we? I like that. We're Anglicostal. So, because traditional Anglicanism, you know, you've got all the objective stuff and the Pentecostals have all the power and we want to have both together. Though I don't think we're, you know, in, in that first century sense, we have to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Nothing else is going to cut through. It's just too hard. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be frustrated. If it doesn't work, you're going to be full of pride if you ever make any progress, unless the Holy Spirit fills you. So let me ask you this question. Uh, how full of the Holy Spirit are you? <laughs> how full is your life of spiritual power to be different, to love and serve and change the world? I'm going to pray. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do two things. One, to open your heart to Jesus again. And two, to ask the Holy Spirit to give you his power so that you can change the world for Jesus and make the world in this world just a little bit more like heaven this week. So let's pray. And uh, you might like to do this. Maybe you've asked Jesus into your life before. Maybe you've, this is the thousandth time you've done it. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, come into our lives as a church, as a representative standing on behalf of this church. I want to throw the doors of this church open to you, Jesus, to say, come and dwell in us. May it be true of us as a body that you are our life. Individually now, uh, you might want to just say something to Jesus along the lines of, Jesus, come into my heart. 
Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, fill me with you. And Holy Spirit, we ask you for power. We ask you for spiritual power to change the world, to be a blessing to this world, to bring an end to injustice and suffering, disease and death and destruction. Holy Spirit, we need you to to send us out into this world, even tomorrow, to go and just push back the forces of chaos and evil. We need you, Holy Spirit, to build this church, to fill it with power so that we cut through the, the spiritual blindness and the, and the apathy and the ignorance and the selfishness and the consumerism and all the things that blind our generation. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you to give us power to cut through all of that and to bear witness faithfully to you. So come, Holy Spirit, upon us, I pray. Fill us now. Amen.